In reverence for God's word, if you're able, would you please stand as we hear it spoken. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 11. Therefore shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And our New Testament reading is from Romans 15. <clears throat> May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Please join me in prayer for the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. And as we gather this morning to worship you, Lord, from uh, just all around, we gather our hearts that we may glorify your name. And Lord, we especially pray now that as we hear your word, that we would have the posture, the attitude of, Lord, worshiping you still. And that as we hear your word, your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. And that we, as your people, would respond, Lord, with joy and thanksgiving. And that our lives, Lord, would continue to be sanctified, continue to be transformed by your word. And we pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we know today, the past of the Israelites has been one of ups and downs. 
the story ever since Genesis has been that God in his faithfulness, in his mercy, in his grace and love for his people, for his creation, has been, has been so good to his people. Yet his people, right, namely the Israelites in the Old Testament, they haven't been good to God. They, they follow him for a time and then they become sinful and they turn away from him. They rebel against him and they flee. They flee from God. But again, in God's grace and mercy and love for his people, he once again swoops in and he saves them and he redeems them, right? And so Israel follows God again for a time. But then they become sinful again and they rebel against God. And such is the, 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 the timeline of these ups and downs of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we're in Isaiah in our Old Testament passage today where Isaiah, through the... He's the mouthpiece of God. And so God speaks through Isaiah about their wickedness and about their idolatry and how they're rebellious against God. Even though they do all of the right things, they, they make the sacrifices, they go through the motions, they're doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing, yet he says they're not doing it with the right heart, that inside they're wicked They actually don't love God at all, and they've turned away from him. And so through Isaiah, God admonishes his people. He rebukes them for their wickedness, their callous hearts, their infidelity, their idolatry, because they would not turn back to God. And so he raises up the enemy. He raises up the Assyrians and the later on the Babylonians, to take over the people and eventually take them as captives. And through Isaiah, God proclaims this in Isaiah 6, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is what is prophesied of the people of Israel, that they will be taken away, taken captive because of their wickedness to God. Yet, God also gives them hope. And it is prophesied that God would even leave a remnant of his people. He would still save some of his people as a stump remains on a tree after the tree is burned down. He says a stump of his people will remain, and there would be a holy seed. Though all would seem lost for God's people, there would remain hope for them, one that would come from among them, one called Emmanuel, who, as our passage states today, would be like a shoot out of a stump, out of this burning, this burnt tree, this stump that seems dead and desolate, it is prophesied that a shoot would come out of this stump. And as in today's passage, this shoot would come from the stump of Jesse. And why Jesse? Why not from the stump of David? Because, of course, for the Israelites, David was the great king. He was the chosen king. He was the beloved king. Why not from the stump of David? Why the stump of Jesse? In order to emphasize the utter hopelessness of Israel. How hopeless Israel would be when this shoot came out. 
that it wouldn't be the, like in the times of David where he ruled with a mighty hand and there was blessing and there was prosperity. Even the great kingdom of David would be no more. And the Messiah would come, not from power and might, but from a peasant farmer in humility. Today's scripture also describes that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and he shall judge with righteousness, and he will cause the remnant to come together along with all the nations to worship the Lord. And of course, this shoot of Jesse, this Emmanuel, is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was, and he still is, the only true hope for all who would believe in him. To save them from destruction and danger from other nations, but also to save them from their own sins. And indeed, Jesus Christ is the only hope for all humanity and for us even today to turn away from our sins, to be saved and forgiven, and to have eternal life. Yet, the Israelites, they were charged to wait to wait for this Messiah, to wait for this Emmanuel, this shoot that would come out of this stump and give them life. They were charged to wait for centuries, not days or years or even decades, but for over seven centuries. They held on to this prophecy that one day a Messiah would come. For centuries and generations, parents told their children to continue to look forward to this hope The remnant would have to cling to this hope. Many, without seeing it to to pass, come to pass, generation after generation. And so we read in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple, how joyful Simeon is that he was able to see this prophecy come to pass, that he was able to see the Messiah's coming and witness it before he died. And the same with Anna who waited her whole life in anticipation for this Messiah. And when she's able to witness it, what does she say? In joy, Luke chapter 2 tells us, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, They were waiting and waiting generation after generation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so for us today, when we look back at the first advent, we say, oh yeah, that was easy. We read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and we read about the the Savior coming, Jesus Christ. And, you know, he's just born in a manger just like that. He grows up just like that. And then his ministry just like that, right? And we just read chapter after chapter and, ah, it just flies by. We can't forget that these people weren't just waiting for him for a year or for four years or whatever. They, they were waiting for him for generations. And in order to fully understand that first advent, we must also understand the immense anticipation and the expectancy that God's people had for the coming Messiah. This prophesied coming Messiah was the only hope that they had. And for those who truly believed in God and loved him, it caused them to cling to God even more, to cling to his word, to cling to his promise. So the question that we ought to ask ourselves today 
during this Advent season is, do we have that same kind of hope in our God? Do we have that same fervency and dependency on our Savior? Do we look to God and hope in Jesus Christ as the Israelites did for so many centuries, clinging to his promise, clinging to the hope that one day the Messiah would come? This same desperation, and it was, it was a desperation. They were in affliction. They were in oppression. They were in slavery. He was their only hope. And their desperation and their longing for a Savior is not lost on us today. For though we already reap the benefits of Christ's coming, he has already come. We already understand Christ's atoning sacrifice and his resurrection. We also are able to have this fervency, this desperation, this hope in our Messiah, in him today. Not for his first coming, but in his second coming. Because we know that Jesus Christ will come again. And sometimes we forget that we are called to have this type of desperate hope for our Messiah. Many times we hear stories of incredible faithfulness of believers all over the world. And many of these stories come from believers that are under persecution. They live in persecuted countries. They worship in underground churches. And many of them live in a reality where they might be killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. They show through their lives that they truly believe in God and they truly love him by the way that they live, by the way that they endure persecution and trials, yet still cling to God and cling to Jesus. Their only hope is Jesus Christ. They don't hope in their careers. Their hope is not in material wealth. Their hope is not in their legacies or even in their families. It's not in their children. Their hope is being with their Savior, Jesus Christ. Their hope is clinging to the promise that he will one day return again. Their hope is in one day they will be in eternity with their beloved Messiah, their Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this Advent season, as we also remember the first Advent and we join in remembering and expecting and awaiting our Savior Jesus Christ, we ought to be encouraged and challenged by such a courage, such a boldness that's exemplified by our brothers and sisters across the world. Of course, we're not mandated to do these things. If you're not being persecuted for your faith, don't go and look for persecution. If someone's not trying to kill you for believing in Jesus, don't go and try to be killed. We are not mandated to suffer even for our, our Christ, even though Jesus says that those who do follow him will, they will be, we will be persecuted and we will suffer. Yet we are called to have the same heart, the same type of fervency as those who do suffer now and are being persecuted now for their faith. Our Old Testament passage te teaches us today that one of the results of having, I'm sorry, our New Testament passage teaches us today that one of the results of having this type of great love, this great fervency, this great hope in our Lord Jesus 
in verse 5, is to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us that those who really love Jesus, who truly love Jesus like the Israelites did when they're awaiting their Savior, like those who are persecuted today around the world, love our Jesus and hope in Him. He says those who truly love Jesus will live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. You see, in this time period when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, there was a looming issue in the church of Rome. Many different types of people were from many different backgrounds were being saved by the gospel of Christ and they were coming into the church. And this is an issue because that means that there were Hebrew Jews that were being converted and coming into the church. There were Hellenistic Jews that were being converted and coming into the church. There were God-fearing Gentiles and there were not God-fearing Gentiles. There were people from all over the place with different backgrounds different ethnic cultures and religious cultures, different everything coming into the church. And as a result, there were many disputes that arose within the church about all kinds of things that caused the Christians to become divided. And so Paul, along with the other apostles, they encouraged these Christians and they taught the Christians how to resolve their differences. Because back then in the early church, they didn't have options to just go to another local church. When their feelings got hurt, or they didn't like the praise music, or maybe they wanted a better youth program, or maybe the preacher didn't preach a message they wanted to hear, they didn't have an option to just leave the church and go to another church. For the most part, there was only one church, and everyone had to go to that church. And if you had a problem, then you had to work it out with your brothers and sisters. If there was a matter of discipline, if there was an issue that was going on in the church, then the brothers and sisters gathered together and resolved it. They didn't just go to a different church or say, I'm out of here. And this is how it should be, even today. And so here Paul is addressing an issue that they had between what some would call the weaker Christians and, and some of the stronger Christians. It seems that the quarrels arose because of their different views regarding different religious practices, such as eating meat versus eating vegetables, observing certain days as holy, and drinking wine. And the issues do not pertain to what was morally wrong. They weren't talking about, is it wrong to murder someone? Their disputes arose among their personal convictions, their personal preferences, and their own consciences. For example, the disputes were not over whether salvation is tied to eating meat or vegetables. If, if you eat vegetables, then you're not saved. And if you, if you eat meat, you are saved. But they were talking about their own consciences, whether they thought it was okay or not to eat meat, whether it was okay or not to eat a vegetable not pertaining to salvation. If it were the case, then Paul, I think, would be a little bit more serious in his writings as he was in Galatians or in Colossians, for example. In these cases, people 
were not accusing each other of not being saved, but they were fighting over what was right and wrong. You, you can do that. You can't do that. Christian freedom and Christian liberty, and uh, you're not supposed to do that. A good Christian doesn't eat meat, only eats vegetables. So if you want to be a good Christian, then only eat vegetables. And these were the disputes that arose. The problem was that there were those who felt that they were stronger in their convictions and allowed for things or didn't allow for things based on their conscience. The issue was that sometimes the weaker Christians would stumble. To this, Paul encourages the Christians to live in harmony with one another. That is, to practice submission to one another. To love each other in humbleness and humility. Not accusing each other. Not being arrogant in their practices. Not thinking themselves better because they have taken a certain position, but giving understanding and even giving up their own personal liberties when necessary. The main point that Paul is teaching is that every Christian is free to hold to their own personal convictions, but that no Christian should cause another to stumble because of their liberties, because of what they call their own freedoms. And so if any if my Christian conscience tells me it's okay to go out and eat, eat out on the Lord's day. And my fellow brother says, in my conscience, it is not okay to go out and eat on the Lord's day. We should keep it holy. And holy to me means eating at home. And for me, holy means I can go out and eat. I will not drag my brother out to eat and say, you, you, need, you need to just be more free in your, in your faith. you got to stop being so legalistic and come on, just co- come and eat with me. Then I would be causing my brother to stumble. And likewise, my brother shouldn't tell me, you can't go out and eat, otherwise I'm going to judge you. You're a bad pastor. I'm going to tell everybody you're a bad pastor. There would be a mutual understanding, a mutual love, a mutual submission to one another. And, and, and maybe I would stop going out to eat on the Lord's Day for a time if that meant that I could love my brother better. If that meant that I could help my brother more, then I would even give up my own liberty so that I can love my brother or my sister more. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans, the Romans passage we read today. And all of this comes, he's taking all of this, he's drawing all of this from the example of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we are to love each other in this way, and he says, in accord with Christ Jesus. And we read in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The reason we ought to submit to one another, the reason why we ought to love each other in this way is because Jesus loved us in this way. Our Savior, the one we hope in, the one we love so much, the one who we have expected and waited for so much, Paul is saying, he became a servant. He became a servant for the circumcised, for the, those who believed in God, who are chosen by him, the Israelites. And he became a servant even for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. He 
came as a babe in a manger rather than in royalty or as a king. He came and he sacrificed himself for all of his chosen people. In humbleness, Christ died for all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike. He redeemed us to gather all of his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue to come together and as Paul tells us today, with one voice to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the reason Christ humbled himself. This was his plan and purpose from the very beginning. Simeon, of course, we, we go back to Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is presented at the temple. And Simeon, this is what he proclaims. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It wasn't hidden. And then all of a sudden in the New Testament, the apostles are like, oh yeah, yeah, the gospel is also for the Gentiles. No, this was the plan of God from the beginning. That he would gather all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, to proclaim his gospel and to glorify his name. This is the goal and purpose and aim of Christ's coming and his sacrifice. And this is the reason, Paul says, we are to love one another such that we can glorify God together. The reason why we submit to each other, the reason why we love each other, we become servants of one another like Christ became our servant, the reason why is not because, oh, I'm, I'm just such a humble guy or I'm just such a nice guy, or, you know, ah, you know, I'm just such a good person. But it's so that we, who are from all different tribes and nations and tongues and all different backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds, that we can all come together and do what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We set aside our differences, our personal preferences, to love one another with Christ's love. And we stop arguing and we practice the mercy and the grace that we have been shown by God first. I love how Douglas Moo puts it in his commentary in Romans. This is what he says. Divisions in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission the proclamation of the gospel, and the glorifying of God. In other words, we don't have time to argue and trifle over trivial issues of our personal preference and what we think and what my opinion is. Because when we do, we are taking away from God's glory. We are taking away from His praise and His worship and honor that is due to Him. And so then, we must strive to come together as God's people, regardless of our personal differences, our different backgrounds, or even our different cultures. If we're going to spend time and energy on something, let us spend it on resolving our differences. Let us spend it on growing in our love and our understanding for each other and learning to live in harmony with one another. Of course, this is all through Christ. Only our Lord can do this in us to unite us as his people and he works in us so that we can understand his sacrifice and then follow his example 
as his people. And so we, as the people of God, are called then to strive to do everything we can to glorify God with one voice, as one voice together. And so then, what do we do? We gather to worship together. And some people say, oh, I don't, I don't need a church. Or, I don't need other Christians. Or, I can just do it by myself at home. No. We, we need each other. We need each other to be the church. Paul doesn't say, well, all right, so live in harmony with one another so that you can go back home individually and just worship God by yourself. He says, live in harmony as much as you can. Live in harmony with one another. Why? So that you can gather together and with one voice, together, you glorify God. And so we gather to worship together. and We gather to serve together. We serve God and we serve one another and we serve our community together. We are discipled together. We fellowship together. And sometimes it's hard because we are all different and we have all different opinions. We have different personal preferences. It's hard. And I'm not saying it's easy, but we strive as much as we can by the power of the Holy Spirit to do all these things together so that we may honor and glorify our Lord. And going back, we love God just as the Israelites loved and anticipated and expected their Messiah and Jesus Christ. They put all of their hope in him. We who know Jesus Christ, we who know what he has done for us, how he has saved us from our sins, how he has redeemed us back to God as his children, we who love Jesus and put all of our hope in him, we set aside all other things so that we can come together and glorify him because we love him. So, as we join in the remembrance of the great anticipation of the coming of, of, first, of Christ's first coming, let us remember, remember why he came in the first place. He came to save us from our sin. He came to redeem us as his children. But he came to unite us so that we can live in harmony with one another, that we would glorify him with one voice. And so let this not just be another holiday season to take vacations and sing Christmas songs, to go see family, or just go shopping because there are a lot of great deals out there. These are all good things, things that we, we can do. But let us be intentional, intentional about growing in our love for those who might not always agree with us, intentional about allowing the Spirit to sanctify us and help us to grow in love for those who might not share our personal convictions. And let us spend this season reflecting before God how he desires us to live in harmony with one another so that with one voice we may glorify our God and Father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And in this season of Advent, we once again remember his first coming. And we put all of our hope in him. And we are reminded, Lord, that we are, even today, to have a fervency, to have a passion, to hope only in you. For we know that you will come 
again one day. We know, Lord, that all of the things of this world will pass. And so, Lord, we pray that as we put all of our hope in you, as we grow in our love for you, Holy Spirit, would you help us to grow in our love for one another, that you may be glorified through your people who worship you with one voice. We pray this all in your name, Jesus Christ.